Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami So, um, one of the uh, things that um, I hope people have been reflecting on or is becoming apparent for, for us all is um, as the days go by how, uh, how subjective our, our perceptions are. Um, the little exchange there was because uh, I know um, from Panchagananda who's been uh, coaching the, uh, the Dhamma Talk Invitation Choir <laughs> and that people have been signing up for different days and so my, my guess was that um, Somebody signed up for Tuesday and didn't realize today was Tuesday. <laughs> so uh, perceptions uh, uh, are unreliable because someone, the person who signed up, I don't, I'm just guessing this. Maybe they were thinking, oh, great, I'll be on tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to do it tonight because <laughs> I'm on tomorrow. Why doesn't anyone do the request? <laughs> Can't be me because I'm on tomorrow. I think we've all had this kind of experience before. <laughs> yeah. When's this bus coming? Or, yeah. <laughs> and you realize you're at the wrong bus stop. You know. Yeah. So this is a, a, an important uh, consideration. Yeah. Sanya anicca, perceptions are impermanent, unreliable, uncertain. And uh, yet we take them so seriously. And there's probably some people thinking now, is it really Tuesday? <laughs> is he joking? Yeah. yeah, I think as far as Western conventions go and the East Coast time, today is Tuesday. <laughs> um, but we believe our, our perceptions so easily. And... Um, and yet they're, they're extraordinarily arbitrary in many respects. And so part of the purpose of meditation is actually to cultivate the recognition that, that our perceptions are not reliable. That they are subjective and, and dependent. Just the other day in one of the, um, the group uh, dialogues, interviews, um, somebody was saying how uh, she was hearing this, this noise and she, she couldn't decide whether it was the sound of a bird in the garden, ergo delightful, interesting, beautiful springtime in Massachusetts kind of sound, or it was somebody's nose. <laughs> Ergo, disgusting, body function, <laughs> repulsive. And that she was watching her mind going back and forth from one perception to another. And uh, it, couldn't, it couldn't fix on which one was the, the, quote, the real, <laughs> the real perception. Um, and this is a common experience for all of us, isn't it? If you're out and about in the twilight, in the early dawn or in the evening, and the, the light's dim, or in this hall, if the light is dim, and we can see a shape and say, is that, it looks like t- 
two people kind of trying to pick something up or looking at something on the ground. Oh, it's not two people, it's somebody doing a forward bend. <laughs> oh no, it's a dog, it's a dog. <laughs> the eye tries to, and the, the brain tries to patch in all sorts of different images to, to find something that'll work. And it takes the, it's like joining up the dots. It takes the what little rudimentary bits of information it can and it, it comes up with, a, with a, um, a few possibilities. And it shifts from one to the other, to the other, to the other. So, sanya and icha, perceptions are, are impermanent. Yet we, we tend to think that our way of seeing the world, our way of thinking, the patterns of thought, are some kind of fixed and absolute reality. Uh, but so much of the meditation, and particularly the insight practices, are to do with loosening up that fixity of view, loosening up that, that uh, rigidity uh, within us. And just uh, learning to see in a, in a different way, learning to, to uh, relate to our own thoughts, our opinions, our perceptions with, with a greater circumspe- circumspection, greater uh, spaciousness. I was also I was reading a, a, a book recently about a, um, a South American tribe in the Amazon. I think they're called the Paraha. That's probably the wrong pronunciation. But they are, um, this is a, a Christ, it's a, it's a story of a Christian missionary uh, who went out with the job of, of um, trying to convert these people to Christianity. And the story is basically how he actually gave up on Christianity <laughs> and was, was radically changed by being with, spending 20 or 30 years with these people. And one of the, th- the, there's many interesting things about this tribe. I'm not trying to idealize you know, the, um, in, in any particular way, but there's some really interesting things about the way they, they perceive the world. Because there's many tribes around the planet that have simple number systems, like one, two, three, lots. <laughs> they, this, this, the, para, the paraha, they have no concept of number at all. They can't say one of anything or two of anything. They, they have no way of framing that. Uh, there's a, a little account he gives of how they, they were trading with some other people from up the river who are you know, much more sort of uh, westernized and, and been in contact more with the, the, um, the, the greater world. And they, they, they know what honesty is and they know what being cheated is. And they figured out maybe this, this number thing can work, can help us out to know when we're being ripped off and exactly how, by how much, <laughs> you know, or the degree to which we, we're being ripped off or cheated. So they say, we want you to teach us this number thing. And so this fellow sat down with them, for, uh, and so there was a group, a group of them, uh, for, eight, uh, for I think eight or ten months, he met with them several times a, a, a week, and they were very keen, very interested, and he said not one single one of them could count up to ten after eight months. They just couldn't get number. Just didn't make any sense to them. Had the, uh, because from early childhood and their whole you know, li- li- uh, lifetime, that was not used. It didn't. It wasn't needed. Didn't function. So there wasn't a way that the the mind could frame it. That's interesting. They're, they're a totally functional society, and they, he said they're disarmingly happy most of the time. <laughs> Incredibly cheerful. So they have a very interesting relationship to number, time. They have no way of representing anything that was not either is not either being seen or experienced now, or being recounted by an eyewitness. So that makes Bible stories kind of hard to, <laughs> to pass on. Because he would say, well, you know, you know, 
Joshua was, was fighting this battle in Jericho. I said, oh, well, well um, and they would ask, start asking him about what the battle was like. He said, oh, I wasn't there. This was, this was thousands of years ago. And I never met Joshua. And then he said it wasn't like they couldn't understand the words, but they would just go blank. Like, well, that doesn't mean anything. It's like the words suddenly lost their meaning because it's, you, know, you weren't there. It wasn't an incident that you saw. And, uh, and he, he tested this. It, was really key. it took him a long, long time to get any kind of grasp on the language because they have very, very limited um, uh, phonemes. They have like something like three, vowel, three vowels, and the women use seven consonants, and the men use eight. There's, one, there's, a, there's a, 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 a consonant that's used in hunting language that the women don't use. So it's a very, very simple language. And he realized that when he was trying to pin down what, what, what words were, that they slid between consonants and vowels all the time. He thought, look, you know, is, it, is it pucks? Is it ducks? Is it lux? And they said, yes. <laughs> right. He said, no, no, is it, is it a P? Is it a, oh. And they were thinking, this guy's a fool. <laughs> but anyway, there's, there's many, many interesting aspects to it. One of which is one of the languages they have is a humming language. And he realized that this is the way that mothers uh, talk to their babies. And that uh, they're very fond of National Geographic magazines. They love looking through National Geographic and seeing different people in different places. And he was watching this mother with her little child. And uh, he thought she was just sort of humming some kind of random tune to her. And then he realized as he listened, what she was actually saying, even though there was no consonants and no vowels, it was just a lilt of the sound, she was describing some Inuit people um, uh, uh, that were uh, on a whale hunt. She was telling the story of these people out in their canoes amongst the ice and explaining to the, to the baby, just through this hum, no consonants, no vowels, just mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but he, once he'd, he turned his ear to it, and he knew the language well enough by then, he could recognize it. But to the outsider, they were just, or more casual observers, or even linguists, they would think, well, it's just the mother humming to her child. But uh, he realized she's actually explaining the pictures to the kid. Another interesting thing is their, their uh, sense of color. They have no particular words for color. So black is blood, uh, blood that's gone old. Or green is what happens when something is new. And that um, you know, trying to pin these things down for the, you know, the Western scholar. <laughs> Extremely frustrating, but uh, it was really interesting as this fellow gives this account of how living with the people and learning their language and interrelating with them, he found his own, uh, his own perceptions and his own views coming into a different perspective because he, he had realized how much he had felt his way of seeing things growing up as a good American Protestant uh, was real. <laughs> And then uh, through immersing himself, himself in such a different set of perceptions, it threw into uh, a different light his own conditioning. And he realized, well, how do I, well, why do I call you know, what I think? Why do I call that true? Why do I call that real? You know, what makes this such a, a, base, you know, such a dependable baseline to work from? So it was a very interesting account, I thought, on a dumber level of how... Um, uh, we can uh, get a perspective on our own conditioning. 
that uh, and things like time, uh, number, uh, color, they, they seem to be utterly ordinary and everyday realities to us. But yet, uh, these are constructed, fabricated, dependent qualities. And uh, when we recognize that, uh, we see, oh, this is just a convention. These things are determined into existence. They don't have a, an independent reality of their own. That might sound a little bit like intricate philosophy or something that's abstruse, but it's actually a very, if we, if we apply that perspective, it can help to go a long way to ending our sense of, of dukkha in the world. When we take our own thoughts less seriously, when we take our own judgments with a pinch of salt, when we are able to, to recognize, well, this is the way that I see it, but that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the way that you see it then we become more accommodating, or we can become more accommodating to each other. We can find a way of, of uh, functioning in, in the world in relationship to, to the, the world that is uh, far more in accord with a broader reality rather than just expecting everything in the world to line up according to my wishes, expectations, etc. Another experience I had myself, which is, relates to this um, uh, about, let's see, 27 years ago, um, I think that's right, <laughs> using number, <laughs> in 1983, uh, I went through, uh, through England on, a, on foot. I went for a long walk from our monastery in the south of England, Chithurst Monastery. I walked all the way through the country on a zigzag route up to the newly opened branch monastery up near the Scottish border. It was about 830 miles. And it um, took about three months. Um, I was 26 at the time. And I, the, the fellow I walked with was a, a guy called Nick Scott, who's a, a, a botanist and ecologist and general good backpacking hiker type, good map reader. <laughs> um, and so uh, that was a, a wonderful jaunt to do back in, the, in those days. Um, and it was part of our tradition as, as a monastic order is to go wandering um, and through the countryside and to live in the uh, uh, wild places and uh, um, camp out and meditate in the, in the forests or in the hills and such like. So it was uh, part of bringing that, that same tradition from, from Asia into to the West. So then uh, uh, as a, a um, 25th anniversary of that in in uh, 2008, a couple of years ago, uh, Nick had the idea to, to revisit much of, of the route and to go back and see how much had changed. He had this idea to, because we did a book the, uh, about the first walk, and he had the idea to do a, a second book uh, uh, and to have a theme of karma, like how have people changed, all the, the people that we, we met, and how has the country changed in those 25 years. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we, we did uh, certain sections of the original walk. We, we didn't have so much time to play with. And one of the most striking things uh, about going through the, the English countryside was not just that the farms had you know, farming practices had changed and, the, and the, um, the people that we met, they were all, somehow they were all kind of pouchy and gray and <laughs> wrinkled and, yeah. Not like me, of course. No. <laughs> Somehow everyone had got really old. And a lot of the people I hadn't actually seen in the whole intervening period. Uh, so a, f a number of people reconnected with us. But what was really interesting was that um, every single place that we revisited 
something had moved. Like the big house that was on the green in Tilford, it was now half a mile outside of town. You know, I had a clear memory. There's the village green where they play cricket, and then there's the driveway up to Noy's house, and there's this big house. It was half a mile away. There's the green, and then there's this half a mile of road, and then it's behind this big hedge over here. So how do they do that? Squires Hill. I mean, it's a hill. How do they do, how do, they do that? And then we get to this famous church, the only church to St. Martha in Britain. You know, Martha and Mary. Martha was doing the dishes while Mary was having darshan with, with uh, Jesus in the front room. And then Martha got criticized. So there's one church to St. Martha in England, St. Martha on the Hill. And so Nick and I had made a point of going to visit that on the, on the way through England. And they moved it. <laughs> I have distinct memory. There was this... You got, up to the, you got up to the church, and there was this broad view out to the south, and then all the way over to the east. You could see this huge spread of landscape, and there were all these trees in the way that just weren't there before. Big trees, like huge oaks. That just, they did obviously put them there since we were last visiting 25 years before. And every single place we went to, it was, it was, after a while it was really quite funny because... I had the same experience. I had these clear memories of arriving there in these different places, whether it was in Cambridge, or whether it was in walking through um, Lincolnshire, uh, up in the, the, the um, Yorkshire Dales. You know, one after another after another, every single place we went to, the, the, you know, like the, the, the stone walls through the village, they turned them all through 90 degrees. <laughs> and the post office was on the other side of the road. And yet there were these clear because I, you know, I'd, I, I'd been there. I'd, you know, I'd written the, the diary. I'd written the book about it. We had the, you know, the kind of drawings that we made for the book and told endless stories. And there it was in my mind. You know, Lytton Post Office. You know, there's this little village street, and there's the post office at the fork in the, in the fork in the road. No, <laughs> it's on the left-hand side of the road with the big copper beach right opposite. How do they do that? It was amazing. You know, all the way up through the, the Lake District into Northumberland, one after another after another. And it was, so it was, they turned into this a, a whole meditation on Sanya Anicca. Yeah, the memories have a life of their own. Mm-hmm. It was so amazingly, and I'm supposed, I have a reputation of having, having a good memory. So I had serious doubts. <laughs> like, well, I have good memory, but it's just a kind of fabricated. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fabricated, and maybe it's, it's a good memory, it's just not related to truth. You know. <laughs> but it was a really, that was, in a way, it was the most powerful teaching. Also the fact that I'm 25 years older, and being 26 is not the same as being 51. And that, yeah, there were times when my legs just would not go up that hill. You know, they definitely made the, the hill steeper. <laughs> that was absolutely for sure, that was not a doubt about that. But that was a really powerful lesson because there, over and over again there'd be this internal image and then the reality is, no, it wasn't that way. It's a different, it's different. You're mistaken. And uh, it was a, a, um, an important lesson to learn that, that, that we can't rely on our perceptions or our thoughts or what seem, we seem to be so sure about. And that uh, that might seem threatening in some respects, but if we hold that in a, in a skillful way, then it's a, it's a very powerful and helpful tool. It's also, nowadays, they, they, they say that um, 
Any of you have read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink? Mm -hmm. He also talks about the same field and how actually in the criminal justice system and the, um, eye being an eyewitness is now, um, there, there's a whole different take on, on uh, the, uh, the testimony of witnesses because of people being so um, easily fooled by their own memories. And that, uh, that the recognition that, yeah, this is, uh, this is not reliable. Even when you were, you were right there, yeah, I saw it happen. It was a blue car. It was a Corvette. It was blue. It was like 10 feet away. And then they show you the, CC, the, the closed circuit TV film, red. <laughs> it's a Corvette, but it was red. <laughs> now, the, the, um, the way that we can often relate to that kind of uh, uncertainty is very different. You know, habitually, what we, we do with, uh, with, with the, uh, the unknown or the unfamiliar is not to relate to it with that, that sense of openness and acceptance and, and wonder. Like, oh, look at that. Is that we, we relate to it with, with a sense of, from a sense of threat. And uh, we're, we're, we're challenged. We, when we don't know what's going to happen, we, we fill in with a, a hope or a fear or a plan, an opinion. And we, we tend to uh, unconsciously try and fix the unknown into a, uh, a pattern that w is uh, predictable or, or familiar. And even, you know, when it's what, that, that experience of, of um, just wanting something for the mind to, to have to fill that gap. And even if it's bad news, it's better to have the bad news than not to know what's going to happen, right? You know, when you're dreading getting that letter that tells you you failed the exam. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, it's going to come, it's going to come. And then you actually get the letter and it says, you failed. Ah. <sighs> yeah. We feel relief because it's filled up that, that anxious, um, threatened place. You know, the, the, the devil that we know. So it's helpful to, to consider, you know, these uh, conditioned reactions to, uh, to the unknown and how we relate to that. Another of the things that was interesting with, in relationship to the Tudong walk, which is, again, following in the same vein, was that uh, a couple of the people that we visited on that initial walk um, very diligently over months and months and months took the, the original book that was published in 84, which was done before the age of, of um, uh, desktop publishing and computers and such like, and they, they scanned the whole thing, all of the, the text and the pictures, the maps, the photographs, the illustrations, the calligraphy. Uh, and they, they retypeset the whole book and, and laid the whole thing out and produced a, a PDF for it for the website. So I had to read through the whole thing and, and, and uh, proof it and, and check that they got everything you know, as it was or make the tweaks that we, want, that we needed to to correct certain bits of information. Like in one of the, the map of Britain, the Cotswolds and the Chilterns were the wrong way around. But now with the wonders of computer technology, we're able to switch them back again. <laughs> so the, the Chilterns have uh, <laughs> been relocated. But what was really striking was how, uh, during the account, how often I was in the diary that I kept uh, back in 83, how I kept referring to being afraid. Over and over, in all sorts of different instances, I would talk about, I was afraid of this or afraid of that, you know, afraid of of um, what was going to happen to us, or afraid of going through this town, or afraid that Nick wasn't going to come back from the village shop with any food. 
and it was really striking. And, and Nick, uh, when he was going through the, um, the book to work on the second book, made the same comment. It's like, wow, you, you, have, uh, you keep expressing this sense of fear and anxiety. And um, as I read it through, it was jumping off the page at me over and over again. And it, uh, it made me reflect. That's another of the things that's, that's changed a lot in the intervening years was how um, throughout my early life, from early childhood and, and certainly through that time I was on that walk, and, it was like, and I, I realized up until about, six, uh, I'd been a monk for six or seven years. So I did the walk when I was, I'd been a monk about four years, five years. And it wasn't until two or three years later when I was uh, first living at Amaravati Monastery in, uh, in southern England that it began to dawn on me that if something existed, my default option was to worry about it. If it exists, worry about it. You know, that was the, the, and I saw that was the basic way that I related to the whole world. Everything. Whether it was uh, an event that was going to happen next week, or whether it was what the traffic was doing on the M25, whether it was what that person's um, feeling when they look at me like that, or whether it was just um, walking down the corridor. <laughs> Whatever it was, I, could, I suddenly began to realize that my mind just turned to anxiety, to worry. If, if it exists, worry about it. And, the, and what was really striking was that it had been such a pervasive habit that I'd never, and I, you know, a professional meditator for six or seven years, you know, a full-time meditator as a monk, and I, it was so pervasive, it was like gravity, I just had no idea it was there. Just like when I wrote the, when I wrote the diary the first time and spent all those weeks and months putting the first book together, it never occurred to me that it was odd I was saying I was afraid all the time. It didn't seem unusual or strange. It was just, of course, you know, <laughs> walk into this village, fear. <laughs> walk into the countryside, fear. <laughs> Trying to find a camping place, fear. You know, <laughs> everything. <laughs> and, and so um, Ajahn Sumedho is a very, very skilled teacher. He is the abbot of the... <laughs> soon to be a retired abbot of Amravati. <laughs> but he's a brilliant teacher, particularly of meditation on, on emotion. And um, so I, I finally began to hear advice that he'd been giving all the time and uh, started to apply it, whereby he would say, when you, when you feel an em emotional reaction, then take your attention off the, the, the thing that the mind's getting emotional about and bring it into the body. So whether it's uh, a, a aversion or it's excitement or whether it's uh, fear, whatever it might be, um, attraction or, or aversion, irritation, just try to withdraw the attention from the object and turn it into the body and, and see where does that sit in the body? Where is that anger? Where is that, that desire? Where does that fear sit? And as I began to notice this, this feeling of fear being so pervasive, I decided, well, I, this is ridiculous because this is just, I'm just doing this to myself all the time. And I, uh, and I realized I need to, to work on this. So I, I started to try and apply that. And I, made, I would make a resolution at the beginning of the day, like in the morning sitting. Okay, whenever any feeling of anxiety, any fear whatsoever, whatever it's directed at, whether it's a fear of some internal quality or an external quality, whatever it is, I'll 
bring the attention into the body and notice where I feel that, and then do what I can to relax and let it go. So uh, I, I found it such a powerful and direct practice um, yeah, that uh, yeah, it really, uh, really changed things around for myself. So I talk about it very often because it's such a, a useful tool. Because what I found was that, that invariably, whether I was worried about the traffic and whether we were going to get to the airport on time, or whether I was worried about yeah, the, uh, that feeling in my knee, or whether it was about what so-and-so is uh, unhappy over, uh, I'd bring the attention to the body, and sure enough, right there in the, in the abdomen, the solar plexus, there'd be this knot of tension every time. And then I would make the effort just to relax. Now, at first it took you know, two or three minutes, <laughs> five minutes to, to sort of loosen the knot. And then just staying with that until the, the, the body had relaxed. And then the advice that, that Ajahn Sumedha would give was, that, okay, once, when, once you've relaxed the, the body and let go of the physical uh, concomitant, concomitant of that emotion, once you've relaxed that, then bring your attention back to the thing that you were annoyed with or desirous of or worried about and, and see if it's changed. And sure enough, uh, whenever uh, I would do that, and you'd turn the attention back to the traffic or the person or the, the feeling, miraculously, <laughs> it had transformed. Suddenly the, the traffic was just cars on the road. <laughs> it wasn't this thing, this terrible thing that's in the way. And you, you realize, well, we'll either get to the airport and catch that plane, or we won't. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, the world will keep turning. Yeah, the sun will continue to come up in the morning. Yeah, nothing huge will be, will be spoiled. And if we don't make the plane, then we'll just do something else <laughs> that we don't need to suffer about. <gasps> yeah, because I had this, this sort of basic level of feeling that it was my responsibility to worry. And if I didn't worry, then I just wasn't doing my job. But then when you, you let go and you, you just had the, a, a relaxed body, then suddenly it just didn't seem to be so, so threatening, so, so uh, oppressive. And so for, for two or three years, uh, I, this was where I made the, the main focus of, of my practice. And so, um, so now things are very different. <laughs> so I, I certainly don't have that same kind of uh, anxious, reactive pattern. But it really took that kind of uh, uh, tenacity to stay with it because the habit was very, very strong. But I find this is a, a very uh, useful and wonderful teaching, whether it's anxiety, fear, that's, a, that's an issue for, for you as an individual, whatever it might be, because whenever there's an emotional reaction, often an emotional reaction based on some kind of instinctual um, uh, aspect of, of our relating in the world, and the, the reptile brain protecting our territory, uh, trying to pursue a desire object, trying to, to uh, uh, you know, push, uh, push away uh, an intruder or uh, attack a, uh, an aggressor or whatever it might be, these sort of reactions of the reptile brain. You might think, what? Is he calling me a reptile? <laughs> <laughs> but we all, uh, <laughs> any of you who've done any, any embryology or brain, uh, looked at a, 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 some brain chemistry, you realize that that's what, this is what runs our... Uh, instinctual protective life. These, the, the reptile brain is the interior area of the brain that, 
that runs these basic um, functions that whereby we exist as a, a creature amongst other creatures, protecting territory, procreation, uh, aggression against uh, intruders or, or um, capturing things to eat, pursuing food, protecting territory, uh, cherishing shelter, uh, looking after our, our offspring. Those are all run from this very uh, central non-verbal as uh, aspect of our brain. So it's often in that area, these non-verbal emotional reactive patterns that they have tremendous strength. And uh, it's very hard to, to get much of a perspective on them. This is also why the Buddha laid out the five precepts. They're all to do with these, uh, the, the activity of the reptile brain. Violence, property, sexuality, communication. <laughs> it's, uh, the Buddha put up these little sort of clear fences to say, you know, don't, don't be fooled by these reactive patterns. So when we develop this way of, of using body awareness to, to get a, a perspective on that, then the, it's, uh, it gives us a very, very helpful and direct means of handling it because it seems so real that when something's irritating, that's bad and it's wrong, get it out of here. Or something's attractive, oh, wow, wonderful, great, I've got to have it. It's, uh, uh, these are powerful instinctual forces. When we recognize what they are and then we bring the attention to the body, the body is a very monosyllabic language. It's a very direct, clear, and uncomplicated. And so that sense of, of bringing attention into the body and then noticing what the reaction is, whether it's in the belly or in the throat or the shoulders or in the face, whatever it might be, just to bring attention to that, really n notice it, that, notice that feeling that goes with the emotion. Without trying to, first of all, without trying to change it at all, just let it be fully known, directly known, and just let it sink in how uncomfortable that is. But what? And then what arises, either verbally or just intuitively, is why do I want to do this to myself? <laughs> this is really, this is a thing I'm doing to myself. I'm creating this anxious, tight feeling. And I don't have to do this. And then out of that space of recognizing that we don't have to do that, we don't have to follow that that emotional reaction, that in instinctive reaction of desire or fear or aversion or uh, protection and so on, then to consciously relax the body. And what you find is that, uh, as I was saying, that you can't really sustain a good fret if the body isn't backing it up. It's, it's really, you know, if, you, if, you are, if you've seen something that you're worried about and then you, you relax the body and, and then the body's really at ease, try to get worried. And it's really hard. And, I, and it was years and years after I, I'd uh, been working with this that someone told me, well, you know that's how Valium works. <laughs> and I said, what? And they said, yeah, Valium, it's a muscle relaxant. It doesn't work on your, on your brain at all. Valium just relaxes the muscles so that you can't stay tense. That's why you, it makes you relaxed. <laughs> and that, uh, so that's what I, how I understand it. And one of our, our nursing... Uh, representatives of the nursing community corroborated that just a little while ago. So that's really interesting that, and to see that you can't stay, you can't stay uh, frightened if the body is relaxed. Similarly, if you're uh, averse or angry, you know, if you put a smile on your face, <laughs> you, can't, you can't stay, at, you can't, if you, if you actually 
allow a smile, you can't stay irritated because it, it just scrambles the program. Now, this is a, these are our ways of, of working with, say, emotion that are worthy of investigation. So I would, t- I, I would encourage this, um, this simple kind of methodology when you see the mind reacting or if you've got particular habit patterns of reaction to, to develop that kind of a training, to, to withdraw the attention from the object, the person or the, the feeling or the, 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 the memory, uh, and then bring the attention to the body, see what the body's doing, and then let yourself relax with it. And, and particularly to use the out-breath, the exhalation as a way of, of relaxing the body with that. And then uh, when you've done that, when you've allowed the body to, to settle and soften, then to, to take a moment again to, to notice how good that feels. Oh. <laughs> and not as a theory or as an ideal, but just recognizing, oh, this is, this is much more pleasant. And then to, to look back at that, the, the memory that was so, so uh, painful or the, the, the plan that was so exciting or the, yeah, the person that was so um, uh, threatening to you and to see how they've changed, see how somehow that veneer of, of promise or thread or whatever it might be has just at least momentarily fallen away and how suddenly it seems... Yeah, much more, uh, things are much more in order, things are much more uh, in attune, in attunement with each other. Now the, um, the feeling of fear is just one, one example um, to, to use, uh, but uh, it's, it's a one that's worthy of, of looking at and exploring. Um, earlier today, uh, I had a, the first part of the afternoon, I had a session with the, uh, the IMS and Forest Refuge staff um, they were all gathered for a questions and answer session. And the theme was uh, aging, sickness, and death. Which I, and when Chaz first asked me to do that, I said, oh, is the IMS staff not the kind of uh, <laughs> the collection of, uh, of undergrads that... Uh, Used to run the place, all getting kind of grizzled and, and uh, gray-haired now, so it becomes more of an interesting, uh, pertinent subject. But uh, but I felt it was very good, a very good theme to pursue. And, and so one of the things that came up was uh, somebody asked the, the question, well, have you transcended the fear of death? Um, you know, through you know the reflections or working on... on contemplations of, of death and aging and dying. And uh, so uh, fo- uh, following that discussion, I, I, I had some, uh, I was reminded of a, uh, of this, or I was, I was, it brought this whole area to mind while we were having the discussion, and how with the reflections that we use, like the five subjects for frequent recollection, I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sicken, I'm of the nature to die, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. Abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now, there are those who find that rather depressing. <laughs> you know, can't we just do the loving kindness or the radiating kindness over the entire world? You know, it's far more fun, far more glorious. 
But the, the Buddha was not a sadist. He did not, he, he did not just delight in other people being miserable. He's not a kind of schadenfreude freak, you know, delighting in other people's unhappiness. But he, uh, the, why he wanted everyone to frequently recollect they're going to get old, they're going to get sick, and they're going to die. But what he's doing is he's pointing at that instinctual fear, the, the revulsion that we feel on, an in, on, st on that same kind of reptile brain level, that which makes us recoil. Even, the, even just saying the words, isn't it interesting how that's off-putting? Aging, sickness, death, and loss. That's a, real, that's a real knife in the wound, isn't it? All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. <laughs> All of it. You know, and you think, how can the Buddha be kind? How can he be compassionate if he's just sort of you know, rubbing salt into the wound, twisting the knife, saying, ha, 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 I'm liberated, you're not. You know. it's, that's, you might feel that the, you know, there's some kind of weird satisfaction that the Buddha's getting out of this, but it's, he's, what he's pointing to is that instinctual fear that says, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't really do aging. Thank you. Yeah. You know, gray hair, no. Wrinkles, no. <laughs> Aching joints, no. no. No, no, no. Can we change the subject, please? Yeah. You know, why is it off-putting? I mean, it's not like it's some kind of strange new program that's been introduced, <laughs> or something that's just started happening to humans. Like death has just been, you know, come onto the market, yeah. or it's just, you know, it's just. Uh, swept over the planet you know, all of a sudden and it was never here before. It's not like the fact that we're all going to die is news. Is it? But notice the effect. I say, we're all going to die? What happened? <gasps> right? Why does that happen? Because there's an instinctual revulsion. There's that fear that says, if there's death around, leave. <laughs> because I might be next. That the, the sight or the smell of a, of a dead human body is far more repellent than any other animal. That's because on an instinctual level it says, it happened to that one, you could be next, get out, go. And that's a nonverbal uh, impulse that we, we feel. It's a protection. It's how the, the, our, our uh, physical nature and the chemistry of our, our bodies and brains protects us. So we have the, these natural instincts uh, to be afraid, to be, to be repelled, to be revolted, to, to get away. So the, the encouragement of the Buddha to, to turn towards those is, is not because of trying to, to make life more miserable, but to say, look at the fear that we create. Look at how we run from those things that are just part of the natural order. Look at how much anxiety uh, and insecurity we create within ourselves by by fearing that which is the actuality of life. And, and, the, and the mysterious and wonderful thing is that when you turn towards it and, and open to it, there's, there's a, uh, then we have a, a chance of actually understanding it and transcending it. But as long as we're wanting to make it go away, wanting to be like all the people in the adverts, yes. you know, not the adverts for the retirement communities, but 
the, all the other adverts where you're 23 good-looking and cheerful, you know, all the time. <laughs> That's the, so the, the deva-like you know, human form that is continually presented. If, uh, if instead we turn towards that fact and recognize, well, of course, how could it be otherwise? Yeah, what's there to be afraid of? And it points to also the insight into, well, the, the body is just following its, its natural natural changes. Of course it's going to get uh, older. Of course it's going to uh, degenerate. That which integrates, disintegrates. How could it not? Uh, and then that, what we are, we are then recognizing is that there's, it may not be pleasant to get creaky and to, to be less a- a- agile and mobile like those extra steep hills that I discovered in the north of England. <laughs> it's not pleasant to have to say, Nick, I can't breathe. <laughs> I'm stopping. <laughs> That's not fun. But then you realize, well, I can just sit here on this hillside and make a problem out of it, or I can just sit here on this hillside and wait for my lungs to start working again. We can learn to adapt and let the changes of nature happen and see there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just life and the world doing its thing. So it's, it's by turning towards that quality and opening to that that we uh, are, are not reacting to get away from that, that we, we find a way of, of being at home with it, of transcending it. It's a mysterious chemistry, but that, that's how it works. Because as long as we're running from it and pretending it's not there or hoping that we're going to stay 23 and have, have uh, brown hair... Uh, <laughs> forever, then, you know, it might stay that way, but it might not. You know. We have, uh, we have uh, the, the opportunity to, to look at that and to, to see, well, what am I running from? What, am I, uh, what do I think that I have that I'm afraid of losing? And the Buddha's encouragement to, to, to look at it in that way is like turning towards a feeling of fear and then in the same way as, uh, as relaxing the, the body, relaxing the attitude towards it as well. Like, to open to that, yeah, this is just life doing its thing. It's just the way nature is. Who is there to own it? Who does this belong to? What is there really to be lost? Is the universe going to be diminished by me being more wrinkled or not being able to breathe so easily? No. It's just nature doing its thing. Now, one of the really interesting questions that I, that I didn't really come up with uh, when the, the fellow asked about um, the fear of death that occurred to me afterwards was uh, a, um, something that, uh, that intrigued me a number of years ago, and I often mention in, in talks because I find it so sort of indicative. Because uh, even though we have this sort of instinctual um, aversion to aging and sickness and death. Very, very often in the West, when you, when you talk to people about dying, they'll say, I'm not really afraid of dying. Um, I, just, I don't want to experience pain. Uh, as long as it isn't painful, I don't mind, I don't mind dying. Or like Woody Allen, yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried about dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. 
you know, but for many people, the concept of, of death is not threatening, or, or just they don't want, you don't want to experience a lot of pain with it. And it, uh, in Asia, it's quite different because <laughs> they have much more, much more of a mythology around what's going to happen afterwards. And so there's a sense of, you know, where am I going? You know, I've got a ticket, but I'm not sure where it's to. You know? <laughs> and I can't get a refund. You know? But uh, us uh, more materialistically oriented Westerners, just the idea of, of the life ending is, 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 not a, is not a problem. And it's, it's an interesting thing that, uh, that came up in a study. I think it was Harvard psychology department did it uh, quite a few years ago, I guess 10 or 12 years ago. They did a big survey of six or 7,000 people. And the questions were about fear, what you were afraid of. And in the top 10 things that, that people were afraid of, sort of, number 10 was having the house burgled and uh, losing your precious possessions. And sort of number four or, or five was um, being physically attacked and, and, uh, and permanently injured. Um, yeah, number uh, number three was you, the the country going to war and having your uh, you know, your um, homes and families uh, destroyed. Number two was worldwide nuclear war. Number one was public speaking. <laughs> Fear of public speaking was more frightening to more people than the destruction of life on Earth. <laughs> now that is a pretty powerful statement to me. Like, you can cope better with your ho- you know, being attacked, permanently injured, losing your home, your family, being raped, nuclear destruction of, of, of the planet, more than getting up on stage and, the, uh, and uh, dying in front of an audience. So ego death is more frightening than even the death of, of the whole, the whole species. That's a pretty powerful statement, because in, in a way it's not surprising. Because for, in the West, in particular, I think we're more identified with our ego than we are with our body, which is a story in its own right. That the, you know the body is this kind of thing that stops our neck from scraping on the ground. <laughs> you know, well this this sort of ambulatory brain moves its way through life and sort of sees and hears and eats and tastes and it's just this kind of thing that, uh, that hangs around uh, off, off the neck that helps it to get about and that uh, the um, and that Gorgonzola so uh, So that one of the, the, the uh, interesting things with that is to see why is ego death so terrifying to us? That we're more afraid of dying on stage, of looking like a fool, people not liking us, uh, not, making, not being accepted into the program, being thrown out of the, of the committee, um, not qualifying, uh, you know, not being chosen for the team. I mean, how many of you still have traumas about not being picked for the, for the, for the uh, volleyball team? You know, the last one. Oh, God, it's me, the last one again. <laughs> you know. And you know, when you don't even like volleyball, but you still hate <laughs> being picked last, you know. So, 
So that, that is how we, we fend off, uh, off the, the feeling of fear and insecurity is a, is a huge part of our lives because we, we're trying to, to avoid that ego death, avoid being rejected, being unloved, uh, uh, to have that feeling of, of um, being un, uh, unaffirmed of being dismissed or rejected, being uh, insec- and that fundamental insecurity. And so what we, we tend to do, and I, 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 again I speak from experience, uh, is that we, gets, uh, we buy into the whole becoming urge. This is a Buddhist jargon term, becoming. It took me a long, long, long time to figure out what it really means. But becoming uh, in Pali is bhava. So it's, related, it's closely related to the word for meditation, bhavana. But bhava means, um, it comes from the verb to be, and it's to do with that urge to get on to the next thing, to be something, to be somebody. And why is this such a problem, even more in a way than, than things like sense desire or, or anger? It's because it very easily disguises itself as um, worthy activities, like becoming a good meditator, becoming the perfect yogi, um, becoming the, uh, the uh, uh, accomplished Dhamma teacher, Becoming, becoming, becoming a good person, becoming a compassionate person. Um, obviously, there's other less skillful or useful things that we can become. But uh, it's because it can uh, that urge can cover itself over with these um, so socially uh, approved attributes that we miss it. We don't realize that, and we can spend a lot of time um, building an identity, fo- fostering that sense of, of I and me and mine. Uh, and that that feeling of identity, even me, the meditator, even me, the failure. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about me. That was me that was left to the last. <laughs> I'm being talked about in a dumb talk. Yeah, <laughs> right. Some, there's something that can get some satisfaction about that. That it's like oh, he's talking about me. Yes, I'm so bad. I'm so useless. Yes, I've always been like that. It's the, the I am. It's like the hungry I, the ever-hungry I that that's, that's feeds on the events and the perceptions of, of the life, trying to create the sense of me being something, going somewhere. And that, uh, that, that's a, a tremendously powerful urge with, with us, even just to the point of, of just the way we cross a room, how when you're, you're leaving this hall, so, the, the urge with which we lean towards the, the shoe racks or to, towards the, the tea urn or the, you know, the, the door. That there's, even if you're walking in slow motion, yeah, I've noticed that here on retreats, the sort of the becoming urge of people walking incredibly slowly towards the bulletin board to check out the action. <laughs> you know, ever so mindfully and carefully, like, nothing will stop me. But yeah, there's control. But we're still, we're, we're just, the heart's given over to becoming. And, and it, that's why I'm, being, I'm walking mindfully to the bulletin board to see if there's a note for me. Because then what, what's that thing that goes, there's a note for me. <laughs> it's got my name on. Oh my God, I'm famous. <laughs> you know, the, there's, there's a thrill there. That, that there's a charge. That's the becoming is that. That which affirms the feeling of I and me and mine, even if it's not verbalized. Or the, 
So, so much of the, of the meditation then and, and, re, and the real genuine quality of liberation is letting go of that urge to become. Like, uh, there's uh, some very beautiful teachings on this in the suttas where um, one of the, the enlightened elders says, uh, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Just, and, and that doesn't mean being annihilated because the, 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 the partner of bhava-tanha, the desire to become, is vibhava-tanha, which means the desire to not exist or to not feel, the desire to, to be annihilated. So it's not a matter of just white, trying to wipe out or not feel or not, uh, not know. But it's letting go of that compulsion to get on to the next thing. I was telling some other some people in one of the interviews. There was, a, there was a bumper sticker that was around in the San Francisco Bay Area for a while that said, "Me somewhere else tomorrow, finally happy and okay." <laughs> so that's the epitome of the becoming urge. You know, like just over there, just just beyond the next breath. Just when I've when I've got this retreat, when I get back to my room and I can meditate, when the Dhamma talks over, when. <laughs> When I've got my samadhi together, when I don't have to meditate anymore, yeah. When then, when, just over there, there's the promise of completion. So that which recognizes that that pull, that leaning, and then see again, feeling the tension of that, just like feeling the the tightness in the belly with the anxiety, or the tightness in the shoulders or the jaw. Just seeing the the pressure that's there, the tension of becoming and realizing this is something that is being done, therefore it can be not done. We can let that go. And then when that becoming urge, when we just allow ourselves to, to relax, which doesn't mean, even mean that you stop walking, the body can still keep walking slowly towards the bulletin board, but then but the becoming stops in terms of the attitude changes. That the body's moving, but the, the mind that knows it is perfectly still. It's not tied to time or place or some other future uh, where the promise is, is located. So this is a most uh, you know, a, a wonderful and, and useful uh, insight to cultivate. That just seeing how we fend off that feeling of, of fear and security, that the, the, the threat to the self, the imagined self, with incessant becoming of various different kinds. And that uh, we, when we turn the attention, again, when we turn the attention onto that and realize, well, who's being protected? What is there to get? What is there to, to, to accomplish that's permanent and, and of value and secure? What am I trying to get? What am I trying to be? And then to relax with that, to, to uh, release that, that habit. And then in that releasing, just notice, what's, what's that like when the becoming stops? What's the quality of the heart, of the jitta, when the becoming stops? What's here? That's the answer. <laughs> It's really peaceful. There's a, a quality of genuine rest. We're not on the way to the next thing. We realize, oh, this is the next thing. 
the Dhamma is akaliko, it's timeless. It's not just over there. It's not some other time. It's here. It's now. It's this. And that that uh, relaxing and opening to the, the present, that's always possible for us. Whether we're in action, the body's moving, or there's speech happening, or we're, or we're eating, or we're sitting still. You know, the, the activity of the sense world does not intrude upon that, that spaciousness. It's, and it's up to us to recognize that that's always here. And we have this wonderful opportunity to awaken to that. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs> Go ahead. You can do a repeat. Let's finish with the five subjects for frequent recollection. Just to twist the knife in the wound. For the benefit of all beings. That's... Um, page 46. But can you make a bit more light? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Annamayang abhinnapachawe kanapatang banamase Jarang anatito I am of the nature to age I have not come beyond aging Bayadidamo mi bayading anatito. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not come beyond sickness. Maranadamo mi maranang anatito. I am of the nature to die. I have not come beyond dying. Sabehi me pie himanabehi nanapavo vinabavo. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Kama sakomika madayadoka mayonika mabanduka mapatisarano yankama karisamika layanangwa papakangwa tatsada yado bawisami. I am the owner of my kama. Heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, 
Abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. He wang am he yabin ha pachawe kitabang. Thus we should frequently recollect.